Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, if she hadn't been fired from a Woody Allen play, she might not have begun a career as a writer that has brought so much joy to so many of us. Welcome the incredible actress, author, activist, and my friend, Annabelle Gerwich, to the podcast. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is Annabelle Gerwich. Annabelle is an actress, activist, and author of five books, including her latest, You're Leaving When, Adventures in Downward Mobility. She was the longtime co-host of Dinner and a Movie on TBS, a regular commentator on NPR, and host of Wasted for the Discovery Channel. Her many theater credits include the plays Coney Island Christmas, Women in Jeopardy, Go Back to Where You Are, and many others. Some of her many TV and film credits include Daddy Daycare, Seinfeld, Murphy Brown, and more. She co-hosts the Tiny Victories podcast, and that is just the tip of the iceberg of what my friend, New York Times best-selling author Annabelle Gerwich has done today. Annabelle. <laughs> yeah. Annabelle. All today. I did everything today. That's Alana. incredible. I know. Yes. Gosh, I know. You know. Well, as we speak today, um, yes. I'm reminded of, first of all, how many decades we have known each other and how happy <laughs> that makes me. Um, and then the other thing my listeners get to learn about, and it's obvious from this bio that I just read, that you have never let people tell you what lane to stay in, that when I first met you, you were an actress. You quickly started writing incredibly hilarious material while you were being cast in all sorts of things and have continued to just find ways to be an artist in so many different ways and an activist, which we'll talk about too, and a mother and a daughter and all the things and a great friend. So I want to talk about the book that is sort of the the press tour you're on right now. But I also want to talk about sort of your origin story and and where and when and how the arts became so central in your life. Well, you know, first of all, I mean, just it's just so great to talk to you. But you know, you're it's just so funny when you say that about all the different kinds of things I've done. I mean, um, I just ran into a friend of mine, Melanie Mayron, who people know from 30 something. And, uh, and at first from those amazing movies, she did uh, like girlfriends and Harry and Tonto, but now she's a director of television. And we always say we're just two scrappy Jewish girls. I mean, there was never the intention to do a lot of different things. Like a lot of us who started out together in the theater community, when you were uh starting out Naked Angels. And I was, you know, as all of you guys in Naked Angels were people that I knew I was working the super avant-garde. Yeah. <laughs> the, the end of the avant-garde. It was, it was barely still going in, in lower Manhattan, but I was, I was hanging on to that part, but our lives, we met then and there was a yeah. lot of overlap with that creative community. And I just wanted to act then. I never was thinking, oh, I will then go on and write or make documentaries or, or, or really do anything else except act in hopefully very depressing plays. That was my one goal in life was to do super depressing socio-political dramas. I mean, it, you know, um, so, uh, you know, that was the original dream, but I mean, I think that, yeah, <laughs> I'm so wasn't. glad. 
<laughs> I'm so glad that didn't work out for all of us. Stephen Burkhoff plays <laughs> barefoot, very yes. strident, you know. But yes. I, the, thing, the thing is, is that every time I've made a switch, it was kicking and screaming. It wasn't like, mm. oh, I think I will adapt now. I mean, when I started hosting shows on television like Dinner and Movie, which turned into like a seven-year gig, which is a really great gig you know yeah. um and i and i really had mostly really great times doing it i mean of course it was it, we were shooting on a shoestring budget at first and it was all like a long form improv and i mean there were some you know you stay with something for seven years there were some bad moments mostly good but the, you know when i went to audition for that show i was like this is stupid and beneath me. Mm. I mean, you know, right, there's, right. there's never been a time when change wasn't presented when I said, yes, that's what I want to do. It's just, it's just, I, I ended up, um, I, I, for some reason agreed to do it. Maybe it was because at first it was an agreement to do like six episodes. And so it was sort of a lark and then yeah. it was really fun. But I, I always had said, no, I only started writing really full time after I had come back to New York to, um, to, in, in thinking that I'm going to come back and now move back to New York and just do theater. It was after like a lot of television work. And then I gotten hired to do this Woody Allen play at the Atlantic. And if I hadn't been fired from that play and then, you know, put together this night of stories that we premiered at second stage of people being fired, Richard Kind and Stephen Adley Gerges and Andy Borowitz and Judy Gold and all these uh, friends of ours, Fisher Stevens, uh, which turned into a book. I mean, that was one I did not see coming. I mean, how did you in in the in the aftermath of like, I mean, certainly at that time and now we would think very differently about yes. an offer to be in a Woody Allen project, right? Yes. Um, but yes. at the time that was still like, aside from the downtown theater world you described, what would be the other thing every actor dreams of? I have made it when I'm in a Woody Allen project. So that was what we thought at the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so can you tell that story? You know, boy, I could tell a lot of different versions of that story. Yeah. Well, and anyone you want, <laughs> yeah, you want you to know, tell. I mean, because I've really rethought that story a bunch of times now. Hmm. You know, the story at the time was uh, at that moment, um, even though I knew that there were um, potentially uh, things that, uh, like, I, 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 I think I was maybe sort of aware of the, of the, um, of the, uh, situation with Dylan and the, and, and her, um, and her testimony, uh, that was. You mean even at the time? At the time, yeah. I, I might've been aware of that. I was absolutely aware of the personal situation with Soon Yi, which I, had trouble reconciling with, but I, the idea of working with him, but I was still in that spell of Woody Allen is the, one of the greatest living directors. And, you know, um, the funny thing is, is as I say this recording right now, I'm recording from my friend Jessica Hecht's apartment. And um, at the time that I auditioned for this play, I had heard Jessica had turned it down, this role down. Hmm. She just wasn't thinking it was a great role and it was not a great role. <laughs> to me. But right. I did not feel I could turn the audition down. And I, and when I got cast, I, I did, I had this thought of like, yes, you know, I'm going to, this is my ticket back to returning back full time to theater always done theater in Los Angeles and working with the Atlantic back with all of our Atlantic friends, Atlantic theater company friends. So that's how I saw it. Uh, There are a lot of great people in the cast during rehearsals, the rehearsals of the play. I really didn't like the message of this play, which was uh, it had that message in it. The, um, the heart wants what the heart wants. And, I just, I I had a lot of trouble reconciling myself to what I was doing. And 
I'm sure that was partially why I sucked so much in this role. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And of course, that's my responsibility. I accepted the role, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple different issues going on there. I mean, really, there's that whole part of the story of I just kept thinking, what's Woody Allen stuff with Sunni? I'm a mother. If this, you know, just the moral ethical dilemma. And then uh, there's that story. But there's also the story, I'm an actress in the play. It doesn't work out. You know, it Mm -hmm. could have been a generic story. Right. The thing was a generic story. Let's say it wasn't Woody Allen. Let's just say it was uh, you get a role in a great, what you think is going to be a great show that's going to change your life and you get fired. So after that happened, um, I, a friend of mine, uh, Eric Simonson, who's a director, uh, theater director, and also uh, a filmmaker and uh, is a Steppenwolf director. Uh, I decided I wanted to write about it. And Eric read about a thousand drafts of this story. And I ended up settling on a story to tell that wasn't about the Woody Allen aspect of it, except for a few small Mm -hmm. minor digs at how terribly unfunny the play was. But it was really about what happens when expectations meet reality and how do you pick yourself up from failure. And that's what I chose to go with because – the other parts of the story, the Woody Allen part of the story, and what vile human being I even thought he was then, but still a great director, that was kind of immaterial to what I felt was a greater message. And this is where I sort of the, an enlightening hap- did happen very consciously for me in terms of activism, because what happened was when I was thinking about what the experience was of being fired and how I would need to pick myself up. I started looking around at the greater issue of the shift to the gig economy in America and what that was doing to our society. And I hooked up with, I shouldn't say hooked up. I called Robert Reich (laughs) at Brandeis, the former labor secretary. Breaking news. He's, first of all, he is adorable. Absolutely mm-hmm. adorable and so smart, but you know, adorable. But he was so. not your lover, is what you're trying to say. Yes, I am saying that uh, on the record now. But I, I flew to Brandeis to interview him because I, this is when I started putting together. After first, the first thing I did, the first destination was a live show where I invited performers to tell their stories and. You know, honestly, it was like, it might be for an audience of one, me, please cheer me up because I've been <laughs> right. fired. And so I want to hear your terrible fired yes, stories. And, and, yeah. and, and everybody had one and it was a very freeing experience. And all these amazing people um, showed up to tell stories. Fisher, Richard Kind, Andy Borowitz, Stephen Adley Gierges. I mean, just a, a Paul Feig. I mean, it was... The, kind of insane. We were sold out at second stage, did it as a fundraiser. Then I continued to do more nights there. And then I got a book contract for that. But at the same time, I started making a documentary. And the documentary took a turn, though, with uh, the help of Robert Reich, with Bob's help, to look at the effect of the gig economy, because it was now a story of how no longer was it just a story about being fired, but about what the, how everyone in America was being fired from long-term jobs and going to this short-term work. And so So that that, was the segue from your experience to a more universal experience, not limited to the artist's field. Right. And that really changed my life. That did change my life in a conscious way. That one conversation with him and the inclusion of that story, then I started researching stories and I went off to Lansing, East Lansing, to interview uh, people who worked on assembly lines. And that that did change the trajectory of all the writing. I had done some, I had been an NPR commentator telling like funny little stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I say that, I mean, I got a great opportunity there and published essays before that just 
uh, um, here and there. But then this became the thing that actually does really interest me. And that's using my own story as a look at a greater uh, issues in society, which sounds really serious, but they're always comedic stories. And, um, there, and that's what became each of the books that I've published since then, it's I'm just using myself for comic fodder right. in looking at these bigger trends. So, you know, there, there, there had, you know, as I said, there's been no thought to this at all. There've been no thought to the big career shifts, but now that I've been mm-hmm. in the, you know, the writing career has been really directed by this idea of activism and, well, you know, a lot of comedians, I mean, the thing is, I've been working in comedy with comedians. A lot of comedians are, I don't have to, you know, it's, it's not a new, yet, no breaking news here, really interested <laughs> in social issues. It's like, if it if they weren't funny, it would be <laughs> like reading Howard Zinn's Rethinking of America, Chris Rock, and Dave Chappelle, people who are much funnier than me. And let me just say that I'm not putting myself in their category, but I mean, they're they're interpreting life in America. They reinterpret life in America for their audiences. I mean, look, Joan Rivers did the same thing. All the, I mean, the, the greats yeah. and, and, you know, people give their interpretation of life in a given moment. And uh, that's really a, a social activist. <laughs> a lot of it has activism at its, at its core, but it comes out as comedy. Well, one of the places I feel like people have gotten to experience you as a comedian, a social commentator, a thought leader, an intellectual is when you go on Bill Maher. I mean, that is a place where you've had an invitation many, many times to to be on his panel. And I wanted to ask you, A, did you know him personally? Uh, did he, were you cast just to be, you know, a guest on his show and you were so successful at it and he's Johnny Carson and he keeps inviting you back? Like, what is that relationship? Uh, you know what? Um, luckily in 1989, I said, yes, again, this is where I'm so misguided. I read for the pilot of Friends, and I said this isn't going to last. But when I was <laughs> when I this got cast, terribly, no <laughs> one's got their finger on the pulse of what people want to watch on this one. <laughs> this is, right. Yeah, I, I'm always right about it. But I got yeah. cast in a movie called Pizza Man. Opposite, <laughs> I I was I was starring in a show on ABC and one on HBO. Opposite a comedian named Bill Maher, who seemed like a pretty funny guy and I was sure that Pizza Man was going to be an Academy <laughs> that was Award it. winner. Yes. The title alone would make you think that obviously. Of course. Yeah. I, of course. But yeah. Bill and I did this this, you know, rather uh, uh poorly executed on my part, I'm sure, but, uh, but really fun. It was a political satire and a film noir rolled into one. So, you know, that's just so compelling. Yes. And good uh, genre mixing. Great. And, but we laughed for about a month straight of shooting this thing. Like every hour we became friends. We wrote a couple of little shorts together and then we were, we, that was the start of a friendship. And when I actually, when I started writing, Bill was a really early supporter of mine mm-hmm. and has just really, really uh, appreciates my point of view and the humor. And so uh, the appearances that I make on his show, I feel uh, really grateful for, uh, but they're, they're particularly, I think, they are if they are successful it's because he grants me the ability to challenge him on camera and really uh i i, I get a wide berth for getting my message across and so mm-hmm. i've been able to do that and that's uh it's been a great format for me yeah absolutely and he really does give you time well, yes. And of course, I mean, it's not a surprise to, I think a lot of people listening to this show, we're people who work in this business and we understand everything isn't the way it appears. So my recent appearance was I'm particularly talking about uh, this story in You're Leaving When, in which I uh, took in a 
young couple experiencing homelessness through a program called the Host Home Program. And it was, again, although as was is typical in my life, it was all an accident. I was renting out rooms in my uh, house after I split uh, from my husband. And um, uh, I had a series of writers, all people that we both know, people writing on TV shows. Yeah. Clea Lewis's husband came and lived at my house. Peter, uh, Peter Ackerman was writing on a TV show. A uh, writer for the Americans, Laura Shapiro, came. I mean, I feel like we're talking to this community. Uh, so I had a whole bunch of great people who came and lived at my house. I also had a a very drunken French tenant, and that story is in the book as well. But I, I, I had a tenant cancel at the last minute, and I ended up signing up to a program that I really didn't know what it was, but it was inviting youth who were experiencing. Uh, actually, they were called unhoused mm. in, in in what I had heard them talk, this program talked about. And honestly, I thought it was like foreign exchange students. This was right. not what I planned. I didn't, right. I didn't know what this was, but there was a stipend. So I was like, I'm game. And what it was is, and what it continues to be, and there's programs in 11 cities around the country, is you, if you have an extra bedroom, you can help young people, and this program is a curated program, uh, from falling into chronic homelessness. And what was- Wait, when you say a curated program, meaning in terms of the people who are chosen to live in your home? Yes. As opposed to open to anyone? Well, yes, because that wouldn't be safe for them mm-hmm. or for you. you know, so they vet. You, they vet the person with the home and they vet the, the unhoused. Yes, yes. Okay. And, and, and I think, you know, just for instance, what I just said to you was said to me, and that really surprised me. So when I asked about who would be, you know, housed with, in my home, well, they, and they said, well, it's not going to be someone who has high acuity, which means like they're actively involved in a drug habit or in a, in a, have a criminal record. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, because that wouldn't be healthy for them right, or for you. And they put them first. And mm-hmm. that really stuck out to me because that was the very first moment this is just so um, uh, embarrassing to admit, and this is what I'm really writing about, is how much I didn't realize I had otherized people between us and them. And I couldn't believe this, you know, this social worker was saying that this other, these other people, these unhoused people's health might be even more important than mine. Mm-hmm. But actually what they were saying was it was on par. And I honestly was thinking of the power balance in a different way. And the whole program changed my life and my perception. First of all, I had a really inaccurate perception of who's falling into homelessness in America. So what did you, can you talk a little bit about that? What was, what, what is the answer to that now? If someone were to ask you that question? Well, the answer is, is that, um, because of the wage gap in this country and the skyrocketing cost of housing, I mean, even after COVID, it's even worse. It's, Many, a large percentage of people who are experiencing homelessness are people who are working people. They simply can't hold on to the place they're living at. We are not uh, a society that is prioritized wages that a living wage so that you can actually live somewhere with a roof over your head. And Mm -hmm. we see this also as generational for people who are, you know, uh, of a generation where you had a longer term employment with benefits, you had a better chance at building wealth or there was generational wealth. And you've got just generations of people now who are slipping through the cracks, who are working people. And what I also discovered was a lot of the people who are experiencing homelessness, and that's why we say experiencing homelessness, is because when we label someone as homeless, it sounds like an immutable 
uh, condition that we can't change. And that uh, sort of like this assumption, like, well, they've always lived on the street, you know? So you, it, it's in a way of, um, making them less than and otherizing them. And, you know, one of the things is that this population is often invisible. When you see people who are living visibly on the street, those people may have other issues. Like there's a whole other population though, that is also at risk. And this population are people living in their cars or in shelters who are employed. And it's very likely that if you are getting in an Uber, if you are getting food delivered, if you have ever gone into a retail store. So this basically means if you are anyone in America, you are interacting with the unhoused people who are experiencing homelessness. You just don't know it. Mm -hmm. And this was really brought home through that experience. And so for instance, but back to this particular point, which is uh, that you know, of course, uh, so that was a story that uh, Bill Marr and I agreed that I would talk about on the show. Now, Bill knew very well that I was going to use the phrase experiencing homelessness. And I okay. know that Bill is very, uh, uh, let's say, activated by what he might consider PC language. So, right. you know, it irks people- him. Yes, it irks him. And, you know, people who are watching the show, you know, might comment and say, oh, Bill let you correct him or something. Or, well, right. this is all agreed upon in advance. It's right. not really a surprise. So this is this is a, a grace of Bill's that I think is, and, you know, all talk show hosts, it, this, is, this is how these shows get put together. We know this. But I, I really appreciate that because it allows me to get the point across really well by having a moment like that. And actually Bill is the producer of, he's one of the producers of the pilot I'm writing for HBO right now based on that story. I am certainly not the only person, you know, in, a, in America who's done this program. This is happening in 11 cities around the country. It started in London, this host home model in the LGBTQIA plus community. Uh, it started as a program where people would open their homes at night for um, young people in the gay community who would find themselves in the middle of the night not having shelter. And this grew into a hosting program where you would provide housing, particularly it was for the um, people in the gay community, gay and trans community, Mm -hmm. because they were so ostracized. That's who it was originally made for. And still, many of the young people in this program are youth who've been kicked out of their homes for their sexual identity. Oh, uh, and it's, it's really the funny, uh, funny, not, you know, funny, ha ha, but something right. I think um, many people will relate to is in some sense, I found this kind of model. There is a, a great precedent for this in the arts. You know, I saw in these young people a lot of similarities to my own background. And this is something I write about in the book about how, you know, particularly in the theater community, there isn't anyone I ever did a play with who couldn't call me up. And many people have and say, hey, I'm coming to L.A. Can I can I crash at your place? Right. Sure. I mean, once you've shared a dressing room with someone, you're you're bonded for life. Yeah. I mean, it's really it's, intimate. It's so intimate. It's like you know, we always call it the theater family, and I, and I, I always took that to heart. And of course, when I came out to LA, I, I not only did I couch surf a lot. There was one point I ran out of places, and an actress friend was staying at um, Mark Lynn Baker's house, who was away in New York doing a play. She invited me to stay there, but Mark wasn't supposed to know I was there. So he didn't know. I wasn't, this is back in the days when you are like a landline. I wasn't allowed to answer the phone. And I was supposed to like stay away from the windows so the neighbors wouldn't see me. <laughs> I mean, I was, 
that's so crazy because I stayed in Marklin Baker's house too. So I, I mean, he did know I was there because I was dating his best friend at the time. But I can picture that house so perfectly in the kind of deep. You, you probably stayed deep in the in the downstairs in the in the yes. in the basement. Yes, <laughs> it had exactly a very good shower. Yes, I know it. <laughs> that's so funny. I was, I was basically. What do you call that? In I the was, catacombs. Um, in the catacombs, hiding out. I, you know, illegally in Marklin Baker's house. And now I've admitted that I've stayed in his house and he never knew. It. I know, and but I now mean, he will know. And I'm remembering that. Know. Yes, but that was a big deal because Mark was one of the first people we knew who exploded yes. on a sitcom in at a time where that was like, I mean. The yes, money was yes. huge and the exposure was huge and his house was huge. And he was like yes. an answer and on it, Jeopardy, like all the things. I, I know. And we were, you know, in this other generation coming up and I was staying there with Kathy Kinney, as I, mm-hmm. I believe, you know, who had yet to do the Drew Carey show. It was, yeah. you know, I mean, people were just coming out. Pilot season. Yeah. Pilot season. Exactly. And oh my God, just that making that transition, you know, and I remember like these were young people coming out to be artists. Like I didn't have the right clothes. I used to audition in New York for, for plays in my pajamas. I, mm. It was just sort of a ridiculous, maybe downtown attitude that I had, but it was sort of a, I don't know, whatever thing. And I got it to LA and people, my agents were like, you need to buy. Everybody had a little black skirt, a leather skirt. Uh, well, no, you had just had to wear. move into lingerie. It was the yes. same idea, just like more Fredericks of Hollywood. <laughs> yes. Well, you had to buy cutlets, chicken cutlets, yes. which I really <laughs> resented. But uh, but I <sighs> I owned a pair. I did own a pair. But I mean, but, yeah. but anyway, but the thing about like couch surfing is that yeah. we who have had the privilege, and I believe I can say that was you and I, but I'll just speak for myself. I, I realized I had always thought that I was so, I know I'm a scrappy person, but I hadn't seen the amount of privilege I had till I sort of mm. saw that because of my background, even though my family didn't have the kinds of um, uh, wealth as other people I knew just by having grown up in a wealthy community, I knew how to travel in the world in a different way. And so I do include research. And this is sort of where I get a little bit activist in my book. I include some research about the effect of zip code on your life, uh, right. and your later earnings, which is absolutely documented. And so I could really see the difference between how I had wound up, you know, never, there was never a couch that I didn't have, or I mean, maybe a sleeping bag on the floor or the catacombs of Marklin Baker's house. There was, <laughs> I never was unhoused, you know, right. and right. I saw how these young people simply did not have that kind of social network. And right. it really changed my life, you know, profoundly. And of course, anyone with an empty bedroom now is uh, just, you know, has to run away from me because I want to recruit them into this program. Well, say the name one more time of the program itself in case people feel recruited. Well, it's called a host home program. And if you want to hear more about it and hear about whether or not there is one happening near you, you can go to Point Source Youth, which is the mothership for all these programs. They're actually located in Minnesota. And, you know, it won't be a surprise to people that a certain number of people, but not all of the people who are hosts, um, have had arts in their background. Because I, I do think this is something that we, in that community, we do understand a way that this idea of welcoming people into our home who are not family members. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to ask you about your process because you are really prolific. I mean, you've written five books. Five books, yeah. Um, you are also one of the few friends I have who has done a TED Talk. You perform at, you know, The Moth. Uh, you have written many one-act screenplays, plays, I mean, you're so prolific. So how does it happen? How does it happen for you? Do you have an idea and then map it out? Does it, does, 
does someone ask you to write something? Like, just talk about it. Well, you know, it's funny, and and this is something that I I, I think that uh, people who read this book and relate to the uh, subtitle "Adventures in Downward Mobility" uh, will relate to, particularly if they're a Gen X person or like I'm right on that cusp of Gen mm-hmm. X and Boomer, which I'm I I just don't I don't feel I've had the boomer life. And I'm mentioning these generational things because no one has ever just given me money to write. Uh, Okay. Um, And that is something that has, is a much more um, uh, known path for people who are just a little bit older than us. I, I happened to do an event recently with a wonderful writer and friend, Dave Barry, who is, you know, he's a staple of American humor writing. And in this event, you know, Dave said to me, how do I get my ideas for work? What's the process? And I explained to him that I'm always writing. Um, I, I'm very, I get driven by ideas. You know, Um, I get obsessed with uh, a story that I feel like I have to get out. And that can be, you know, a, a big story or a little story. It can be, I'm working right now during the, during COVID, my car was repossessed. It was just about the most frightening thing that's happened to me in outside of childbirth, but like in a quick amount of time, you know, you know yeah. I mean, it was yeah. just terrifying. And, and, you know, millions of Americans, this happens to, and this is going to be a big crisis, particularly post the pandemic because um, of the, the accruing uh, amount of debt that is being piled on. Does so, it happen like in the movies where you're standing in your house and you look out the kitchen window and your car is being towed away? Are you yes, told beforehand? Yes, yes, no, it's no, like that. No, if for okay. the, in the majority of states in America, you don't have to be notified. You can be one day late. And I had, for a series of reasons, uh, lost track of my finances, like many people during COVID. Part of the reason was that I just stopped looking at my bank account and I had had an auto pay and I put it, uh, anyway, I had, I had gotten an extension of the car release because all the dealerships were closed. And uh, so I didn't had I had no idea. 1230 at night, there's a banging on my door. I opened the door. It's we're in the middle of COVID. There's a guy who's not wearing a mask. Who's, oh my god! And I said, "What's happening?" And I thought it was a home invasion. And he said, "Oh, I'm onto your game, lady." Now, when somebody ladies you, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, it's terrifying. And in then, the middle of the night, in the middle without of the night, a mask, yeah, without a mask. And and then I, I mean, and then of course the comedy brain kicks in, you know, because even as horrible as it is, I'm like why aren't you wearing a mask? And he said, can you read what's on my shirt? And I said, it says veteran. And he said, I'm a vet. I don't need to wear a mask. I said, can't anyone buy a t-shirt that says veteran? And that's Mm -hmm. when he started yelling at me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe it was (laughs) that. Not even yeah. that, but yeah. and then car. Anyway, so I I'm working on this story right now. I, I have a grant from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. I have gone from doing Wendy Wasserstein plays to writing for the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. <laughs> that's you know, okay, but that's okay. I I just I I live a different life than I, I used to live, but I I I'm obsessed with telling the story and making it understandable how it's in a, we're in a situation which is like the feudal system in medieval times where people can come and take your car without giving you any notice and, yeah. and then make you pay for it. it it's un, it's really unbelievable. But then it might be just a story. Um, there's a story in my book about accidentally getting a very discounted seat on a private jet and just how much it horrified me that I – Five minutes into the flight, I was ready to sell any organ I could in order to do to it keep again. Blindness. <laughs> yes, you know. But is that really a thing? Like, how does that even happen? What okay. What kind of like? I actually read that, and I was like, I don't no. even know how that could be. 
Well, okay, it, it really does happen. And what it is, is it's called an empty leg seat. Now, when you hear the phrase empty leg seat, and that's what it said on kayak, I bought the ticket on fucking kayak. So right. I mean, really. But did you, you know, did you have any idea what that meant at the time? No, I thought right. it meant a medical transport. You know, there was a yes. body part mentioned. Yes. I mean, empty leg seat. I don't or like, know. you know how sometimes there's a flight attendant <laughs> on the plane with you using a seat to go home, yes, not working. Yes, that's, like that's yes. What, yes. I that thought kind that was thing. like a, like a half a seat or like I have to kind of stand. I mean, I don't, it just did not make sense. I really yes. wasn't paying attention. It was like, a, right. okay, I did a total actor thing. This is why I say like in the theater, it's so, when you've, when you've been an actor, I don't know, it's hard to ever, it's just such a deep imprint. So basically Thanksgiving was coming up. I've always tried to get a job at the last minute to avoid Thanksgiving. And yes. as an actor, one of the beauties of being an actor is you do usually, I mean, when at least no. in the time of, there was a no time holidays, of weddings, bar mitzvahs, right. nothing. So you miss it all. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so great. Yes. And Sorry. also if you can get lucky enough to get into a long running show, sure, there are awards you could win. But the most important thing is you don't have to make a date on New Year's Eve. Exactly. You're, you're in a show. Why do you think I went into this profession, kid? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. These so are the I got secrets. This last minute ticket, you know, I mean, I was just trying to, I was like hoping something would come through. Last minute ticket to uh, to San, uh, San Francisco from Los Angeles on kayak. I mean, what's more of the people than yes. kayak? Yes. So that's how that happens. But I mean, so any 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 number of sort of important issues or lesser important issues can transfix me, and then I, I have to write about it. And then, you know, a book usually collects around a greater theme, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and that, so each of the books is, has a premise that's, that's correct around a theme. And this one, um, Ilana, I don't actually, I don't know if you know this, but you know, actually it was Marissa Tomei who gave me this idea for this book. We I didn't were, know that. Yes. We, another person from our yes. circle in the yep. way back. Right. Yep. So I ran into Marissa at uh, a book signing and you know uh, we've kept in touch uh, over the years you know in a in a loose fashion we're not close friends but I I admire her and mm -hmm. think the world of her but we're having this conversation and we're talking and this is about four years ago we're talking about how everybody we know in every profession is working so hard. Everyone has three jobs or there are this hyphenate or that hyphenate and they're an actor and a podcaster and a filmmaker mm -hmm. and also teaching now at a university or just like all the ways that we cobble together most of us uh, and income and, uh, and how hard everyone's working. And Marissa said, when does the coasting begin? I thought there'd be coasting. <laughs> And right. I right. thought that was so funny and so well, it's so expressed. It's so once a year for three years, I would, well, maybe twice a year, I would email Marissa and I would say, has the coasting started yet? <laughs> when does the coasting start? Are you yep. coasting? And we, she'd say, nope. And we would just, I, I mean, it just was such a laugh, you know? And then that is actually the title of the introduction to this book is I thought there'd be coasting. And mm -hmm. that is thanks to Marissa and, and this, and thanks to, thanks to the world that we live in where everyone is working many jobs and, has changed identities a number of times. Yeah, uh, in terms of you know our roles that we are playing. In and in world. your case, the the kind of you know having a very long marriage, and yes. uh, and and you know sort of navigating that freedom that came to you. Um, you know, which, it's. You know, I, I love the words that you're choosing because some people will say to me, like, 
well, this book starts with a lot of losses. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes mm-hmm. when people will like list them like, okay, both your parents died. Your marriage was over. Your kid went off to college. You don't have a son now. You've got a non-binary person. Uh, your career was stalled. And I'm like, my God, who did this happen to? That sounds terrible. <laughs> like, what, terrible. Yes. Someone help this poor lady. her. Yes, yes. But but <laughs> but but actually, in in truth, uh, all of the things that were the inciting incidents, you know, mm-hmm. um, to the stories in this book, most of them are natural things that happen in our lives. They're yep. really less losses and more passages. Yep. I mean, I don't want to sound all Gail she or passages, but you know, it's, 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 it, they are, I mean, all of our parents die. That's, I mean, that's, that's just life. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I was no longer a daughter. Our kids hopefully uh, launch from the nest. So I'm no longer in that daily motherhood. Although I do also write about our kids boomeranging back home as so Mm -hmm. many of us have had our adult children come back home. You know, my, uh, my child, Ezra, who's now 23 is a non-binary person and identifies as queer and is a very, very feels very at home in the queer trans community as I always did as a, you know, coming from the background, from our background. But, you know, when your child embraces something new, like I had not been aware of the idea of non-binary when we were the same age as my kid. I mean, this is something, I think this is a newer iteration. I, I, I wanted to write about that experience in the book as well with, you know, this honesty of like, in theory, I was like, yes, go Gen Z, you go, you young people. And then Mm -hmm. when your own kid comes home and you go, what? Mm-hmm. Are you sure it's not a phase? And that, that kind of horrified me. And so anyway, I wanted to write about the way I even disappointed myself, you know, my right. first reaction. But in any case, they're, they're not so, I mean, the marriage, yes. I mean, uh, look, I, I, I don't like to say that word, you know, the loss of a marriage. I was just no longer a wife. And that was a, a 20 something year marriage, which is kind of amazing because also I live in Los Angeles and a 20 year marriage is 50 years in uh, Hollywood years. So, you know, that's like unheard of. So, um, but yeah, all these things, identities shifted. I mean, let's say shifted instead of lost. And my idea was, could I write a book about this experience that wasn't a weeper, you Mm -hmm. know, because... (laughs) That was what I was trying to live as well. This idea that I had to adapt. And, you know, um, there's a a word that I I really take issue with, and I try never to use it when the word is resilience. And it's not really a terrible word, but I often think, Alana, that women in particular get put in resilience prison, like we're told, you have to be resilient, take two resiliences and call me in the morning, you're gonna, you're gonna be resilient in this journey and chapter. These words are like these code words that always strike terror in my heart, because Mm -hmm. um, I think that they can also make people feel badly about themselves if they're not like bouncing back quick enough. And I, so I, I wanted to write about this a distinction that I make between resilience and adaptability and this idea that uh, for us individually, but also culturally, we have a lot of things we have to adapt to. And I think it's just a coincidence that this book is coming out during COVID when there's adaptability and new normals. And that is exactly what this book is about when you can't go backwards and there's just things have changed so much you have to find a new way of living and it just uh coincidentally the pandemic happened and it seemed to be an apropos um uh topic and i actually i, I was still editing the book when it, it, it up until 
this summer and the summer of 2020. And so there is one story that takes us into the pandemic in the book, but it's not, you know, it's not in totality a pandemic book, but it is, it is about all the themes that I think so many of us have had to wrestle with at this moment. Can I also bring up, because it it is something you've spoken about other places and written about Mm -hmm. something that in some ways is because of the pandemic, you were able to find out about a health issue going on with you yes. that was not related to the COVID test that you thought you were getting. Um, yes, exactly. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind, you know, talking about how you found out that you had lung cancer. Uh, yes. So um, I, I wrote about this in the New York Times. I thought, why? Why not write about it in the Times instead of on my Facebook page? Mm-hmm. I now I I I did that because I felt that this was such a shock. I wanted people. I wanted this to be on people's radar. So yeah. Um, in May of last year, when my child, when Ezra came home from college, we had planned to do, you know, the quarantining that you do for two weeks before we would combine households. And of course that didn't work out at all as planned as it was supposed to quarantine in a bedroom. And I was going to, I was going to wait on them hand and foot, but I would be in the house. They'd be in this little area of the house. Instead I was quarantined and they had the run of the house, but nonetheless, <laughs> that's another book. Yeah. That's another book. That's, you yeah. know, but, um, but so uh, we went for our COVID test and, this just speaks to the chanciness of this whole diagnosis, which is we went to Dodger Stadium, but the line was long and we bailed. Mm-hmm. If that one thing had happened, we wouldn't be talking about this now. We went to Motion Picture Health uh, Clinic where I get healthcare, and they, they're not doing, they weren't at the time doing COVID tests unless you had symptoms. So again, had we had the test there, I wouldn't be talking about this now. Right. We went to an urgent care, random urgent care in a mini mall next to a Trader Joe's. And before we had the test, the doctor, they do the pre-screening on the phone. The doctor said, do you have any symptoms? And I said, I have a little cough. I mean, but it's nothing. I mean, really. But how long had really... that been going on for? Alana, I, you know, maybe like a few months, like I just maybe okay. Sm- three to six months. But I mean, honestly, it was nothing remarkable. I mean, it was just, I just was trying, I was so tired from this trying to get this fucking test that I mentioned it. And, and so after we did the test, we got this, the nurse said, oh, the doctor wants to see you. And I'm like, oh shit, we have COVID. One of us has COVID. Which is it? I'm sure it's my kid has going you know, whatever right, brought right. it into my house. Right. We wait in the, we wait in this little room. The doctor comes in and says, I think you should have an x-ray. You said you had a cough. I'm like, don't I'm like, it's just like an upsell. Like, you know, you go in for mascara and they sell you uh, the night cream at, at the cosmetic counter. I mean, I was just totally sure this was just like some kind of bullshit way that urgent cares make money. I mean, right. just ridiculous. Right. I just, he just wouldn't let it go, this doctor. And um, my kid said, mom, you do cough a lot. And I was like, really? I do? I mean, really and truly, I thought it was acid reflux because I live on coffee. So I get talked into an x-ray, have the x-ray, we come back in. Doctor comes back in and says, you're fine. I'm just glad you did that. It's always good to know. I'm like, great. We're on the freeway on the way home. On on my least favorite freeway, because I've lived in Los Angeles long enough to have a favorite freeway, the two freeway. It's a weird, it's sort of a weird location, kind of deserted. My car breaks down. I ran over something on the road and my, my bumper is dragging. We pull to the side of the road and waiting for AAA and the phone rings and it's on speaker, which is just hideous because now my kid and I are both listening. Right. And it's the doctor who says, I made a terrible mistake. Oh my God. I read the wrong x-ray. You have something on your lungs. You should come back here immediately. I'm like, what? And I thought, this is like a movie. This is not 
real life. This happens only in a movie. This is yeah. just not real. And then over the next three months, I went on, I uh, had had other, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't go back to the urgent care, but I had other x-rays and then scans and then more scans and then a biopsy. And then suddenly I had, first maybe it was pneumonia and then maybe it was some kind of scarring or maybe something. And I mean, nobody wanted to say what it was. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I it was cancer and then suddenly it was stage four cancer. So it was all really a shock. You know, every, I think for women, we all think about breast cancer. Right. Uh, lung cancer is not on our minds. And as a matter of fact, this is kind of lung cancer that is really reached epidemic uh, proportions. Uh, lung cancer will kill more women in 2021 than breast cancer and all other cancers combined. They really don't know why. And um, there is, it's a lot less well-funded than breast cancer and other cancer research. And mm. that is one of the reasons why I decided to, to come be public. forward. Yeah. yeah. In, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. Um, you know, a lot of people in our industry do not come are public when they are, get a diagnosis like this. And as a matter of fact, a number of friends have called me and confided in me. I'm like the cancer whisperer now. Mm-hmm. Um, That's what happens. That they have diagnosis and they just don't want to tell anyone. Right. They and, don't want it to affect yeah. their being hired. Right. I guess as a writer, I felt that I would be in a slightly different position and also, because it was stage four, I felt like, well, if someone hires me, I'm going to have to tell them. I mean, yeah. I have friends who are working, even though they have diagnosis and they're not saying anything. And I'm not, and let me just say, this is no judgment. I'm right. saying this is what a stigma and how yeah. terrifying it is. And it's also yeah. because people are afraid of, you know, a film company was afraid of not being insured. Everything, you know, in that it comes down to insurance. And that's right. that's really terrible. So that's one of the reasons why I've been um, coming forward. And the second is because this is a women's health issue that is so underreported that I also felt that was important as well. Also, I felt during COVID, we, we know that people aren't going to the doctors. And right. so... I wanted to not terrify everybody else, but just to, you know, say just because you don't, um, you know, it's a funny thing. People have said things to me like, well, when I was in the middle of these testing, you don't look like you have cancer. You don't have the cancer look and you feel fine. I really was asymptomatic and that doesn't always tell us about our health, Um, right? you know. Well, that's so, really important to share that it yeah. that it's it's an unseen. Yes. It's unseen. Yes, but I'm so grateful yes, yeah. to that doctor in the urgent care yeah. who decided to offer that to you, and that you yeah. said yes. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I probably wouldn't have if my kid hadn't been there with me. In fact, I, right. I'm really pretty sure I, I wouldn't. I, I mean, I would have been much more curmudgeon but I'm always more polite when my child is there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I so. want to ask you, speaking of your child yes. and just yes. your writing is so personal. It's why it's so good and unique and singular, but it is based on, you know, the names and places are not changed to protect the innocent, as it were, when you um, when you take on subject matter uh, with people who are still living in your life, yes, what's that conversation like? Do you show it to them? Do you do they just understand my mom, my wife, my friend, my sister 
is a writer yeah. and well, all you know, it's all I'm not I'm not married anymore. That's that right. But you, you were. Something. You were exactly. That's true. Fair enough. No. Okay. No. I'm going to take that no. qu- I'm going to cross that one off. But uh you know the thing is is I think this is for any writer who writes nonfiction, and I'm sure even novelists, uh, people I, I know who are novelists have pe- people in their lives who are sure they wrote about them mm-hmm. and are not happy about it. So right. even if you disguise someone's yes. um, identity, it can be a problem. You know, I actually, uh, I really care about this. And, uh, I, and I actually did an interview with a friend, Nicole Hall of Center, whose films I love. Uh, everything from Walking and Talking to Friends with Money to Enough Said. She's such a brilliant filmmaker. And we have a conversation you can read. And it's in Los Angeles Magazine and it's online. And both of us were talking about how because we're drawing from our own lives, try to be really, I always try to be really careful. So that's actually why you didn't know Marissa said that. Now I've got permission from Marissa right. to tell people. Right. But I, I have so many people that I'm drawing upon that I don't always um, have time to ask permission. And also, I, it's, if their identity wasn't important that you know, for the average reader, for any reader, really, it's just sort of a fun story that it was Marissa because we know right. Marissa. But, yes. um, and, you know, since it wasn't, it, for the most part, I don't talk to people because I disguise their identities, you know, so there's a certain level of, of there's all these different friends that appear in this book and different characters. And I've just jumbled up a lot of names and details because I, I wanted to respect people's privacy who hadn't agreed to be in my book and also weren't, I guess, blood relations right. related to me. I feel differently, but now I, my, my sister who is always a character in my books, uh, she now says to me, this is off the record as a, as a, as a part of our regular conversations, if there's something that she doesn't want said and I and I I will ask her you know in advance but I don't run the writing by her because once you do that nobody's ever satisfied Um, right with Ezra because there was I mean I'm writing about and and of course I'm not writing about their experience of uh, gender identity I'm not writing about their journey to sobriety but I am writing about being the mother of a of a now sober person right and being the mother of someone who has changed their gender identity and and that was such a I felt it was an important thing to do in this time so I did have to run the subject matter by Ezra and we had way more discussions than they would like to have with their mother. And they, 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 Ezra said, always says that they don't read my work. And I, I think that's true. And I think that's probably smart. I mean, I, there's nothing in there. I mean, there's also a lot I don't write about. If I feel like something is, is too current, some of the things I'm writing about, like, they've been sober for four years. So I felt there was a certain distance I could include perhaps if that wasn't the case. Well, I certainly couldn't have written about it in the way that I did. And then, you know, um, the one thing in this book, which is slightly different than the other writing that I typically do was including the story about the young couple experiencing Mm -hmm. homelessness. And Mm -hmm. I, um, I first wrote about this story in the Los Angeles Times, and I gave them the exact transcripts. I, for, I mean, first of all, I, I had to have them agree. I wouldn't have written about them had they not agreed. And they really wanted me to tell their story because they really, they never expected to be experiencing homelessness and having had that experience and come out the other side, I do want to say that, you know, the month that they spent with me was enough to allow them to stabilize their lives and move on and establish more ties in the community to get their health back, which had been suffering. They were so exhausted after living in the car, which happens, and they couldn't maintain work. It's really hard to work when you're having to move your car 
every certain amount of hours. I mean, right. the, everything falls apart. So right. they're both housed. They're both living their lives. Um, you know, this, this really does help. So, but I, I, they really want, so they wanted me to tell their story, but I, that's great. You know, yeah. I, I, I did clear that exact language with them. And then I had, I felt it was very, very important to work with them closely. I mean, I approached that as a, in a journalistic way of how much I needed to um, have their permission because it, it was essential. I, there was just, that would have been impossible. The last thing I wanted to do was to affect their lives. You know, they're like right. innocent in bystanders. Way. Of life. course, so, yeah. of course. Well, I just want to say to uh, all my listeners that you can see Annabelle act in a million places. Um, and she's always just her unique gifts comedically and and the way she brings her humanity to everything she does is always awe-inspiring. But I also think these books you've written, all five of them, ending with um, this last one, and I'm going to repeat the title, You're Leaving When, Adventures in Downward Mobility, which you can order everywhere you order books. And if you're in a neighborhood where your local bookshop is open, I really encourage you to go buy local, um, but wherever books are sold, you can find this book. I am really always so grateful when I get to read something you've written because it speaks to me so deeply and makes me laugh so hard and inspires me to go out and do more and do better and to really, beyond all that, just pay more attention, like just mm -hmm. to be awake in my life um, and to be present. And I really love you, Annabelle. And I cannot thank you enough for spending this time today on the show and sharing like just a tiny bit of your huge story. And I hope you will come on again and we can talk more. Oh, every time I hear your voice, Alana, I, my spirits lift. You're such a light in the world and you're just such a talent. I'm just oh. so thrilled. We've known each other for <laughs> decades, of years. decades, yes, and decades. I and I have now looked at that and I wear it with a badge of honor instead of apology or yes, or trying absolutely. to shave numbers off. It's the opposite. Um, Annabelle Gerwich, thank you, thank you. And uh, how do people find you on social media? Do you live anywhere on Instagram or Twitter? If they want to connect with you directly, how can they do that? Uh, you can go to my website, AnnabelleGerwich.com, and see where I'm where I'm landing next on your virtual and one day in the real world screen. And uh, I've got a Facebook author page, and I'm on Twitter. And if I I really actually enjoy Twitter, particularly post Trump. Um, and if you go to my Instagram, you'll be interacting with Ezra because Ezra runs my Ezra is me on Instagram. So if you, <laughs> because I can't I'm so it. glad to know that now I'm really going to go. All right. Yes. <laughs> well, here's to you and Ezra. And um, until next time, dear friend, thank you. Thank you. One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. The episode was edited by Nicholas Clark. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.